Recently, I read a story about a psychologist named Edward Thorndike who in 1898 performed an experiment on the behavior of cats. Now, why cats? I don't know, but, you know, cats are fine, uh, but, yeah, but they're moody. Um, but here's what he would do. He would put different cats inside of this device that he called a puzzle box. Okay, and, and it was designed basically so the cat could easily escape through a door. And it, it would be by some simple act like pulling a, a loop of a cord or pressing a lever, stepping on a platform. And, um, you know, one of the boxes, it had a lever. So when you hit the lever, the door would open and then the cat could get out and get to the food that was on the outside that they couldn't reach. Now, most of the cats, when they were put in the box, they wanted to escape immediately and just get out. So they would poke around the corners or stick their paws through any openings. And this box had a lot of openings on it. So they'd stick their paws through it or claw at loose objects, just trying to find a way out. But eventually they would find that magical lever that would open the door that led to the food and they would escape. And Thorndike would track the behavior over time as the cats were tested. When they were first put in, they moved around at random, but as soon as the lever was pressed and the door was opened, well, that's when the process of learning really started. Over time, each cat learned to associate the action of pressing the lever with the reward of escaping the box and getting food. And after 20 to 30 trials, the cat's behavior would pretty much become automatic. You know, they would be put in and they could escape within a few seconds. Now, when they started, the average time to get out was about a minute and a half. When they finished, the cats had gotten it down to about 6.3 seconds to get out. The cats, with practice, they started to make fewer errors and eventually just went straight to the solution. And here's how Thorndike described the learning process. He said, behaviors followed by satisfying consequences tend to be repeated, and those that produce unpleasant consequences are less likely to be repeated. Now, we're coming to the end of our current sermon series where we've been looking at 10 different spiritual habits that we should be embracing as followers of Jesus. Each of uh, these habits is something that we think will help you grow closer with God and uh, as you walk daily with him. Our goal has been to give you something simple each week to kind of start the process of practicing these habits in your life. And the hope is that as you practice these habits, it gets easier and easier for you over time, really, to just keep doing them. And so you're kind of like the cats. You know, once they knew the solution, they started to easily work out the, uh, the, the puzzle box and, and to escape. Now, for you, maybe, maybe you didn't read your study or study your Bible super well, but now you're starting to read it a little bit every day, and over time you've wanted to read it more and more. Or maybe it was prayer that you started with that five minutes of prayer, but then you started to realize that five minutes really doesn't take all that much time. It's not that long, and so you've increased your time that you want to spend with God. Each of the nine habits that we've talked about already will help you seek to grow your relationship and your walk with the Lord. I mean, that's really been the goal of this whole thing. But today we're getting to our final habit in the series, the habit of discipleship. Now, when you hear that, you might not look at discipleship as a spiritual habit, but I would, I would contend that it is. And as we'll see, we are commanded to both be and to make disciples. And it's not something that we always do well. 
as we go through this habit today, we're going to take a look at, at what discipleship is, how we can effectively disciple people by looking at what Jesus uh, taught us, and why really we should. So according to the Lexham Theological Workbook, discipleship is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from and become more like them. And discipleship is a concept that's been around for thousands of years. It didn't start with the New Testament or with Christians. The Old Testament, it doesn't specifically have a term for disciple, but you can see that type of um, you know, teacher-student, master-disciple relationship in there. And it was common during that era. It's common in other cultures as well. A learner or a student, they would seek out and attach themselves to a rabbi or a teacher. Student might also attach themselves to a movement as well, not just one particular person, but to a movement. Now, in the New Testament, there is a, a specific Greek word, methetis, which is translated as disciple. This word was used 257 times in the New Testament, but it's mainly just in the four Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, and the book of Acts. The primary use was to describe the followers of Jesus. Many times, specifically, it's his 12 closest followers. In the book of Acts, the meaning toward the word kind of expands as well to all followers of Jesus, not simply the 12. And in Acts 11.26, we can kind of see a picture of this because Barnabas and Paul, they went to Antioch, and, and it says in that, that verse that the disciples were called Christians there for the first time. And so it seems as if one of the ways that Christians were known were simply as disciples, using the same Greek word. So a disciple is simply a follower of a certain teacher, and so logically we are disciples of Jesus. When we were saved by him, when we trusted him, we became his disciples, and we're now called to live in obedience to him, like Rick talked about last week. But this isn't something, you know, like in school where we you know, obey because we have to, or, you know, maybe we really don't like our teachers, or we just want to get our work done and move on as quickly as possible. We become disciples of Jesus because we want to have a relationship with him. And he wants to have that same relationship with you. And we love Jesus, and so we want to do what he tells us because we know that he has what's best for, best for us in his plans. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 1.8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Francis Chan, in his book Multiply, puts it this way. He says, following Jesus is not about diligently keeping a set of rules or conjuring up the moral fortitude to lead good lives. It's about loving God and enjoying him. And since we love him, we desire to follow his commands and we should. That's what Jesus told people in, in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. So we're disciples of Jesus. We're followers of him. But it, it doesn't end there. We're also commanded to make more disciples. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus gives a final command to his followers after his resurrection. And so we read that in Matthew 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is what we call the Great Commission. It is the major command from Jesus to us as his followers to help spread the gospel, to help spread the good news. It's what we're supposed to be doing as Christians. We go and we make disciples. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what Jesus is saying in this passage to see kind of what we're supposed to be doing. Because it's really all right here. The first thing is to go. But where are we going? Well, to answer that, I think we need to look at the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, Luke expands on the instructions that Jesus gives his followers, those final instructions, like we saw in the Great Commission. Luke's 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, for his followers there, Jesus gave them the where. He you know, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. They were to be Jesus's witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now, Jerusalem was where they were at when the Holy Spirit came and, and to be with them. And where they would eventually set up shop as the hub for the church was in Jerusalem. Then they were to move on into Judea, and Judea was the area that was surrounding Jerusalem, like that part of the country. Samaria was just north. It would have been moving to the north. And so you can see, like, they were starting Jerusalem. They were witnessing to people there, and and that's what they were supposed to start with, and that's what they did. 3,000 people were added to the fellowship on Pentecost. And then they were to move into the surrounding area of Judea, and that started following the death of Stephen. The church began to be persecuted and scattered. But Acts 8.4 says that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So it's not just in Judea, but in Samaria and then beyond. And, and that's the model they use. They started in Jerusalem, they went out into Judea, then they, they kind of moved out and um, a lot of times north, as you can see in some of those maps in the back of your Bible. You know, they go north up into Turkey and Greece uh, going around. We can still use that today, though. Like, if you think about it, like our church is in Bloomington, right? And as we know, there are a lot of people in this town that need to know the gospel. They need to know the good news of Jesus. They need to hear it. And Jesus said go, but that doesn't mean that you always have to be a missionary to go across the world. Because there's plenty of people who need to hear the gospel. There are more and more every day here in this town, or whether you live in Martinsville or Ellettsville or wherever, but they, they've not heard the gospel. They don't, they, they don't know Jesus. They really don't know much or anything about him. And, and so it is important that we go and, and that we, we share the gospel. We share the good news. Like that's where it's got to start. But it's also got to start in your life. And, and so the biggest thing that when we, when we do go is that our faith is a visible faith. Like it's, it's not just something that we bring out on Sundays to come to church. It is something that we live out every day. You know, our love for God, it's visible because, you know, in the end, your life is the best witness for people when we're talking about faith. It's the best testimony of your faith how you approach life. 
As Philip Nation writes, the, the Greek verb tense that's used in the verse uh, means as you're going. So that go, it's more of like a present something um, that's as you're going. Uh, so though you may have a specific place that God sends you on mission, all along the way, we do this work. So it, it, as you are doing the work, you're going, you're, you're making disciples, that you may have a place where you go, you, you may have a specific place where God is calling you to be, but you do that work all along the way. And, and we do this work, I mean, it comes from a place of love, right? We're supposed to love our neighbors, and we don't want to see anyone perish like God says that. And so we go, we're witnessing for Jesus, we're praying for others that they may know the same joy that we have that can only be found in him. And they might find eternal life in him. And then Jesus continues, he says, go and make disciples, and then he says to baptize them. So as we're, as we're making new disciples of Jesus, those disciples should be baptized. Baptism is like where you put the stake in the ground, you're drawing the line in the sand, you're publicly declaring your faith in God. When someone is baptized, you, know, you think about it like they're willingly placing themselves into the hands of someone else to symbolize and being laid beneath the water, the death of the old, and then rising out of the water, being made new in Christ. As one writer put it, it is an act of a person saying to the world that I belong to God and I am one of his people. And when I baptize someone, I tend to want to make sure that they know what they're doing when they say they want to be baptized. It's never to, to deny someone the opportunity to be baptized, but the reason I do it is because of me and when I was younger, I, I was baptized in, in when I was like 12 or something. And looking back, I did it just because it was the next thing that you did in church. I didn't really understand what it meant. And so after I fell away from God in college and then subsequently returned to the faith, I felt compelled to be baptized again because I was truly putting my faith in Jesus at that point. And I wanted people to know. And so on a, on a day in November 2004, and I think it was a harvest dinner day because there were a lot of people there at the old building, I got baptized again. I don't recommend that for everybody. Like, I don't recommend everybody get baptized again, but for me, it was the right thing to do at that time. Baptism is something that as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you should do. We're really commanded to do that. I mean, when people during Pentecost were asking Peter after he gave this amazing sermon uh, that, that was just so convicting for them, they, they asked him, like, what do we need to do? And here was his reply in Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent, or repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so as disciple makers, we baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them. We go back to the passage in Matthew 28. Jesus told the 11 disciples that were left to make disciples, to baptize them, and then to teach them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them 
and we're able, we're, we're, we're to teach people that we're discipling about Jesus and all his commands. And when you think about that, that, that seems like it could be a pretty daunting task. And it should be like soberly taken on for sure. I mean, James talks about, you know, not everyone should teach because it's, it's a dangerous thing. You're held to a standard because you don't want to teach people the wrong thing. But teaching the commands when you're discipling is still a good thing. A couple things, though, we need to recognize. I mean, in order to teach, you really, you really do need to know at least a little bit, right? Like, you got to kind of know what you're teaching. You got to be in a place where maybe you're a little bit beyond the person where your discipling is, like a little further down the road. But by no means do you have to know everything. I mean, one of the best ways to learn something is when you have to teach it, right? I found that out when I was in, uh, started teaching Sunday school. I was not that much far down the road with the high schoolers when I started teaching. And, and it, was, it was interesting. So I was like, okay, I don't know any of this stuff, but I'm learning too. <laughs> in order to teach well, you've got to learn what you're teaching. And hopefully you, you look at it from different angles too. But also when we're teaching, we, we don't want to be teaching something and then you get a question that you find difficult or, you know, those probing questions that maybe you don't know the answer to. Like you don't want to shut down that conversation either. You want to be able to engage that conversation or at worst, you know, just say, I don't know. But never just shut down the conversation. Like I've, I've seen many times in surveys from students who have left their faith. You know, one of the things was they weren't, they, they didn't feel like a church was a place where you could ask questions. Especially difficult questions that might push on our understanding of things. So be okay with questions, even difficult ones. But also know that one of the greatest answers is, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer, but let's look it up. Let, let's study the scriptures together. That may be the best way to teach. It's like, okay, I got my Bible. Let's look and see what scripture says. Or we ask somebody. Like, you're never going to have all the answers. Be okay with that. Like, embrace that. Also, teaching someone to observe Christ's command is something that's going to require more than just, you know, a little bit of time. Like, that is a lifetime of devotion, both to the Scriptures and to the people in whom we're investing. Like, you've got to be in it for the long haul with them. But it's rewarding when you are. Uh, Philip Nation writes, again, teaching them who Christ is, watching them place their faith in Him, and then walking with them toward maturity is how a disciple-maker lives. Like, it's, it's, it's rewarding when you start to see the connections be made. When you start to see them fully trusting God. It's a lifestyle of walking with somebody over time. One other note, the discipleship process, the whole process, it's highly relational. Like you got to be in a good relationship with people to be able to do this to do it well. 
you're working with somebody, whatever point of the process that you're in, you're building the relationship with them where they're more than just a face and a name. Like you know them, you know details about them. They trust you and can, and can tell you things and you're building that relationship and you're doing it by, by sharing your story with them. Because that's your story. Nobody can change that. You're sharing your good decisions with them but you're also sharing your bad decisions with them. And you're showing your spiritual growth as you do this. And you're going, you know, you're, you're going wherever God's called you. You're baptizing, you're teaching others the scriptures and helping them apply it to their lives because application is key. And you become basically ministers of the gospel. And incredibly, you're not doing this alone. I mean, we as the church, we want to stand by you. We want to walk along with you as you work with others. And we have resources and advice and maybe some answers. But most importantly, like we can support you. We can be there um, with you and help you in any way that we can. But we're just the church. There's even better news. And the better news is that as you go and disciple, Jesus is there with you as well. And we see this in Matthew 28. The commands that Jesus gives are bookended by two statements. Matthew 28, 18 says that Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in verse 20, the very last line of the book of Matthew says, this is what Jesus says, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. You are never alone when you're doing this. Jesus has all the authority in heaven and on earth. And he promises that he's going to be there. So really, your job's pretty easy. You go and you make disciples. But you think about it, God's really the one that's doing all the heavy lifting. He I mean, he's there with you. And there's some things that we can glean from Scripture that helps us understand that the change in people's lives is not us, but it's only God. John 6, 65 says this. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. This is Jesus talking. See, God's the one who draws people to himself. God is the one who enables that. He's the one who changes hearts as well. We read that in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God will provide a new heart, a heart of flesh, not that hardened heart of stone that we have while we were still sinners. And he's the only one who can do that, not you. God really does the work. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he used an analogy of planting seeds when teaching the people about not creating divisions in the church because of the leadership in that church. But I think the same analogy, it can help us to understand God's work in people. He wrote this in chapter 3, verse 6. I planted the seed, Paul says, he planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, 
but only God who makes things grow. Like we have an important step in the process to disciple, but truly God is the one who grows his people into maturity. That's not your job. It's not my job. Our job is to simply faithfully teach and to share life with each other, to love each other, hold each other accountable, help keep each other on the right path, Hopefully you hear that and you're like, okay, well, that takes a lot of pressure off of me. Because it should. Ultimately, what we're doing as we disciple others is we're introducing them to Jesus, who Jesus really is, and, and just helping them follow him. And we do it through those things. We teach, we baptize, we go. When thinking about doing this in the context of a church, I think things are pretty interesting. Because you see, all of us here, we've all got a story of how God has worked in our lives. My story is not the same as your story. Some of those, you know, they're really exciting stories about being pulled from the depths of despair to a new life in Christ. Other times, though, they're not. You know, other times it's just, you know, I met Jesus when I was a kid and he's kept me on the right path ever since. And that's awesome. Like, that's what makes the church beautiful. It's because we have all of those stories. We've all got different experiences. We've all lived different lives. And I think we can disciple people better because of that. My story is not the same as yours. So I'm going to be able to disciple some people better than you. But the inverse is true. Because you are who only you can be. You'll disciple far more and far different people than I can. But as we work as the body of Christ, far more people are going to be discipled than just what one person can do alone. So we go wherever that may be, be it across the world or across the street. We make disciples. We baptize and we teach. We walk with them as we all make this journey together that we call life. All right, so we've reached that time where we would usually give you a habit homework for the week, but this week's gonna be a little bit different. My goal for each week's habit homework takeaway was to give you something that you could do each week, something really practical to get you started on the process of making these habits stick in your life. Discipleship doesn't really lend itself to that. Discipleship is more of a lifestyle than anything else, and so, Instead of trying to find some small way that you can make discipleship part of your life, what I'd love for you to do is to just start praying about who it is in your life that God is wanting you to work with, that God is wanting you to disciple. Also, ask yourself this question, who is discipling you? Are you working with someone who knows you well, is teaching you helping hold you accountable? If you are, that's awesome. Continue to work with and pray for that person or those people, because it could be multiple. But if not, maybe start to pray for God to bring that person into your life. That's a couple things you can do this week and really beyond. Remember, though, discipleship, it's, it's for all of us. It's not just you know, for the pastors, like if Rick and I were supposed to do this by ourselves, a handful of you would be disciples. 
If the elders, if it was just the elders or the leadership in the church that were supposed to do it, maybe a little bit more than a handful would be discipled. But when we all are in that mode, when we are all discipling others, we can disciple the people in this church and outside this church as well. And that brings us to the end of this sermon series. I really do hope that you've been able to take something from each of these habits that we've talked about for the last 10 weeks. Some of them, I think, have been a lot easier to put into practice in your lives than some of the other ones. But they're all important for us to integrate them into our lives. Ultimately, though, despite all of these practical things that we can do, our goal for doing them is to grow deeper in our relationship with God. We never want these things just to become an item on a checklist for you to do. You know, like I did my Bible study, I prayed, I went to church on Sunday, I spent time alone, I skipped a meal, and so now the rest of the week is mine. But that's not what any of this is really about. It's about growing your love for God through some habits that you've built over time. You don't do them because you have to. You do them because you know that by doing these things, it's going to help get you closer to the Lord. Because that's the goal. Like, we love the Lord. We, we like, have to be near him. And, and we want others to know that same love that we've had for him and the grace that he's shown us. And so what we've started this, these, this summer with these 10 habits and I hope that you just continue to build on those and, and to grow. Just continue to grow closer in your relationship with our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me as we close out? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is our prayer that you would help us just to continue to grow closer to you. We've looked at these habits, these spiritual habits that are important but ultimately, that's still the goal, is to just deepen our love for you. I just pray that you would help each and every one of us to do that. I also pray that you would help us to disciple others well. That we would follow the great commission, that we would go and make disciples wherever we need to go, wherever you send us. But all along the way, we do the work we would baptize them and that we would teach them your ways. Help us to live that out every day in our lives. Help us to find people to, to, to disciple. Help us to be confident in that because we know that you're with us and that you do the work. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for Jesus that, that he showed us this way. A way that we can continue to model even for others. And as Paul wrote, we only want people to follow us as we follow him, as we follow Jesus. So help us get that right first. 
We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did on the cross. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.